Hello. Welcome to the Bore You to Sleep podcast. The podcast that will hopefully help you get to sleep. I am going to read an open source book, one that is not particularly interesting, but one that is hopefully boring enough to get you to sleep. Tonight's reading comes from History in English Words, written by Owen Barfield and published in 1926. This story looks at the evolution and development of the English language. My name is Teddy, and I aim to help people everywhere get a good night's rest. Sleep is so important, and my mission is to help you get the rest that you need. The podcast is designed to play in the background while you slowly fall asleep. Thank you to everybody who shared their words of gratitude with me during the week. Thank you to those who left a review in their podcast app. iTunes listener Foxy Maiden, thank you for your amazing review and I'm also glad you came across the podcast. Audible listeners, Brian Smith, I'm glad the podcast is helping you get to sleep quickly. Podcast Republic listeners, G.I. Joel, thank you for your lovely review. I'm glad the podcast is working. And of course, to all Spotify listeners, thank you for continuing to respond to the Q&A and letting me know what you thought about the episode of your choice. As always, thank you to all existing patrons. My goal is to keep this podcast free to allow access for everybody who needs it, and it's the support from listeners via Patreon that allows me to keep bringing out episodes for those who need them. If you find the podcast beneficial, Please subscribe, and of course, share it with a friend who may need it. It would also be amazing if you were able to leave a review in your podcast app. Even one sentence really helps out. If you would like, you can say hello to me at boytosleep.com, where you can support the podcast. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram. In the meantime, lie back, relax, and enjoy the readings. History in English by Owen Barfield Chapter 1 Philology and the Aryans If somebody showed us a document which he said was an unpublished letter of Dr. Johnson's, and on reading it through, we came across the word telephone. We should be fairly justified in sending him about his business. The fact that there was no such thing as a telephone until many years after Johnson's death would leave no doubt whatever in our minds that the letter was not written by him. If we cared to go farther, we could say with equal certainty that the letter was written since the beginning of the 19th century, when the telephone 
was invented. Now suppose that there had been nothing about telephones in the letter, but that it had contained an account of a thunderstorm. If in describing the stillness just before the storm broke the writer had said that the atmosphere was electric, we could still be fairly positive that he was not Dr. Johnson. But this time it would not be because the thing of which the letter spoke had no existence in Johnson's day. No doubt the heavens during a storm a hundred and fifty years ago were exactly as highly charged with electricity as they are today. But if we look up the word electric in the Oxford Dictionary, we find that in Johnson's time it simply was not used in that way. Thus, in his own dictionary, it is defined as a property in some bodies, whereby when rubbed so as to grow warm, they draw little bits of paper or such like substances to them. The word was only just beginning to connect this mysterious property of amber with the thunder and lightning, and however still and heavy the air might have been, it would have been impossible for the lexicographer to describe it by that word. Or again, supposing the letter had said nothing about a storm, but that it had described a conversation between Garrick and Goldsmith, which was carried on at high tension, we should still have little hesitation in pronouncing it to be a forgery. The phrase high tension, used of the relation between human beings, is a metaphor taken from the condition of the space between two electrically charged bodies. At present, many people who use such a phrase are still half aware of its full meaning. But many years hence, everybody may be using it to describe their quarrels and their nerves without dreaming, that it conceals an electrical metaphor, just as we ourselves speak of a man's disposition, without at all knowing that the reference is to astrology. Nevertheless, by consulting an historical dictionary, it will still be possible to date any passage of literature in which the phrase occurs. We shall still know for certain that the passage could not have been written in a time before certain phenomena of static electricity had become common knowledge. Thus, the scientists who discovered the forces of electricity actually made it possible for the human beings who came after them to have a slightly different idea, a slightly fuller consciousness of their relationship with one another. They made it possible for them to speak of the high tension between them, so that the discovery of electricity, besides introducing several new words into our everyday vocabulary, has altered or added to the meaning of many older words, such as battery, broadcast, button, conductor, current force, 
magnet, potential, tension, terminal, wire, and many others. But apart from the way in which it is used, there is a little mine of history buried in the word electric itself. If we look it up in a dictionary, we find that it is derived from a Greek word, electron, which meant amber, and in this etymology alone, anyone who was completely ignorant of our civilization could perceive three facts. And at one time, English scholars were acquainted with the language spoken by the ancient Greeks, that the Greeks did not know of electricity, for if they had, there would have been nothing to prevent our borrowing their word for it. And the idea of electricity has been connected in men's minds with amber. Lastly, if we were completely ignorant of the quality of amber itself, the fact that electron is connected with elector, which means gleaming, or the beaming sun, might give us a faint hint of its nature. These are some of the many ways in which words may be made to disgorge the past that is bottled up inside them, as coal and wine, when we kindle or drink them, yield up their bottled sunshine. Now the deduction of information from the presence or absence of certain words is a common practice which has been known to critics and historians of literature under some such name as internal evidence for many years. It is from such evidence, for instance, that we deduce Shakespeare's ignorance of the details of Roman civilization. But until a few years ago, within the memory of men still living, very little use had been made of language itself, that is to say, of the historical forms and meanings of words as interpreters both of the past and of the workings of men's minds. It has only just begun to dawn on us that in our own language alone, not to be able to speak of many of its companions, the past history of humanity is spread out in an imperishable map, just as the history of the mineral earth lies embedded in the layers of its outer crust. But there is a difference between the record of the rocks and the secrets which are hidden in language, whereas the former can only give us a knowledge of outward, dead things, such as forgotten seas and the bodily shapes of prehistoric animals and primitive men. Language has preserved for us the inner, living history of a man's soul, it reveals the evolution of consciousness. In the common words we use every day, the souls of past races, the thoughts and feelings of individual men stand around us, not dead, but frozen into their attitudes like the courtiers in the garden of the sleeping beauty. The more common a word is and the simpler its meaning, the bolder, very likely, is the original thought which it contains.
and the more intense the intellectual or poetic effort which went into its making. Thus, the word quality is used by most educated people every day of their lives. Yet in order that we should have this simple word Plato had to make the tremendous effort of turning a vague feeling into a clear thought. He invented the new word poyotes, whatness, as we might say, or of what kindness, and Cicero translated it by the Latin qualitas from qualis. Language becomes a different thing for us altogether, if we can make ourselves realise, can even make ourselves feel how every time the word quality is used, say upon a label in a shop window, that creative effort made by Plato comes into play again. Nor is the acquisition of such a feeling a waste of time, for once we have made it our own, it circulates like blood through the whole of the literature and life about us. It is the kiss which brings the sleeping courtiers to life. But in order to excavate the information which is buried in a word, we must have the means to ascertain its history. Until quite recently, about a hundred years ago, philology as an exact science was still in its infancy, and words were derived by ingenious guesswork from all kinds of impossible sources. All languages were referred to a Hebrew origin, since Hebrew was the language of the Bible. This was taken for granted. Since then, however, two new developments have revolutionised the whole study, made it accurate and enormously extended its scope. During the 18th century, Sanskrit the ancient speech of the Hindus, began for the first time to attract the attention of European scholars. In 1767, a French Jesuit named Cordeaux pointed out certain resemblances between the European and Sanskrit languages. In 1786, Sir William Jones described that language as being of wonderful structure, more perfect than the Greek, more copious than the Latin, and more exquisitely refined than either, yet bearing to both of them a stronger affinity, both in the roots of verbs and in the forms of grammar, than could have been produced by accident. So strong that no philologer could examine all three without believing them to have sprung from some common source which, perhaps, no longer exists. At the time, it was no more than a brilliant conjecture, but with it the comparative philology of the Aryan languages may be said to have begun. Secondly, with the advent of phonology, 
certain immutable laws were discovered governing the sounds made by the human throat, and the way in which those sounds change with the passing of time, and react upon each other when they are knit together in a spoken word. Henceforward, it was possible to say for certain that, for example, the English word wit, from the old verb witten, to know, was not derived from the Latin videre, but cognate or related with it. Many words derived from videre, such as advice, envy, review, seem at first sight infinitely farther off from the stem vid than wit. But it was now possible for scholars to say for certain that a Latin stem vid adopted into English could not possibly have changed into wit. They could be equally certain that if the Romans had borrowed the Greek word idean to see into their language, it could never have changed its form to videre, so that innumerable as are the words which Rome borrowed from Greece, videre is not one of them. Thus, it was clear that such groups of three words as idean, videre, and wit, or aster, stella, and star, were not father, son, and grandson, but three brothers or cousins all descended from a common ancestor with a stem something like weed belonging to some other language. This put very briefly, and with many omissions, was the contribution made by phonology to the science of comparative philology. Perhaps it is not altogether insignificant that the study of that seemingly dull subject, phonology, should be associated in our minds with one of the most charming collection of fairy tales in Europe. It is thanks to the labours of Jacob Grimm during the first half of the last century that we are now able to reconstruct the remote pasts of words, not, it is true, with absolute certainty, but with a degree of it which makes a chapter such as the present one worth writing. And while Grimm was burrowing into the rich, loamy soil of German speech and German folklore, another German scholar, Franz Bopp, was laying the foundations with the help of this knowledge and of the results of the study of Sanskrit, of a genuinely scientific comparative philology. Nor was it long before less scholarly but more imaginative minds, such as Max Muller's, were interpreting the meaning of their researches to a wider public. We can imagine the suppressed excitement of the philologists of that time, as they began to discover in that remote eastern language, the sacred language of the Vedic hymns, words such as vid, to see, tara, a star, sad, to sit, brita, 
a brother. For it was not only the evident relation of Sanskrit to the languages of Europe that was exciting. Sanskrit, which had preserved the forms of its words more unchanged than any other Aryan tongue, threw a brilliant light on the close relations existing between those other languages themselves. For instance, although the sisterhood of words such as Greek anoma, Latin nomen, and name had long been suspected, yet there had been no way of distinguishing such a sisterhood from purely accidental resemblances like Hebrew gol, Greek kaleo, and kol, and the connection between brother and freighter was by no means obvious. But when the older Sanskrit from Brita was brought to light, the gap between these words was at once bridged. It could be seen at a glance how the three of them, brother, Brita and freighter, had started from the same original form and diverged through the years. Gradually, all doubt was blown away, and Sanskrit, the language of a race with whom Europeans had thought, and for the most part still think that they had nothing whatever in common, stood revealed as an obvious relative of Latin, Greek, modern English, and practically all the other languages of Europe. It seemed, therefore, to follow that our ancestors and those of the Hindus were at one time living together, that our ancestors and theirs were, in fact, the same. At first, it was thought that Sanskrit itself was the parent language from which all the others had derived, and that the nations of Europe were descended from a body of Hindus, some of whom had migrated westwards, we called ourselves Aryans, because the people who had once spoken Sanskrit were known as Aryas, or worshippers of the god of the Brahmins. But soon the accurate methods of analysis which philology had now acquired made it plain that this could not be so. Therefore, a still older language was postulated and called indifferently the Aryan, the Indo-Germanic or the Indo-European parent language. If there was a language, there must have been a people who spoke it, and attention was soon focused on the character civilization, and whereabouts in space and time of the people who spoke the lost Indo-European or Aryan parent language. The fascination of this particular branch of philological research is apparent when we recollect that in this case. In the case of these remote eastern ancestors of ours, philology is almost the only window through which we can look out on them. In most subsequent periods of history, we have many other ways, besides the study of language, of discovering the outward circumstances of men's lives. Historical records, archaeology, ethnology, 
folklore, art, literature, all come to our help in considering, say, the ancient Egyptian civilization, but it is not so with the Aryans. Here, ethnology and archaeology tell us practically nothing, anthropology a little, and the rest nothing at all. If we wish to cross the darkness which separates us from this period, we must lay down a little plank of words and step delicately over it. And in such romantic circumstances, it is hardly surprising that we should find a veritable army of scholars and philosophers, both professional and amateur, jostling each other upon that plank with such vigour that the bridge and its burden have often seemed in danger of vanishing quietly, together into the abyss. The central principle upon which philologists have worked is this, that if a word occurs today in a fair sprinkling of the Aryan languages, then the word existed in the Aryan parent language, and therefore the thing of which it is the label existed in some form or other in the primitive Aryan civilization. Conversely, if an object or an idea is found to have a different name in most of the Aryan languages, it was sometimes assumed that that object was not known to the Aryans before their dispersion. But this negative deduction soon came to be regarded as unsafe. And there are indeed many reasons why the whole method is limited and uncertain. For instance, even in one language, it is constantly happening that when a new thing or a new idea comes into the consciousness of the community, it is described not by a new word, but by the name of the pre-existing object which most closely resembles it. This is inevitable. We have to proceed from the known to the unknown in language as in life. But language lags behind life, and words change more slowly than things or ideas. When railways first came in, their rolling stock consisted of a string of vehicles resembling the old horse coach so exactly that it was later said that the ghost of a horse stalked in front of the engine. Although this is no longer the case, we still call these vehicles carriages or coaches and look like continuing to do so. To take an even more patent example, when a modern Englishman or American uses the very old Celtic word car, we all know what he means. Yet it would be an error to deduce from this that the principle of internal combustion was known in pre-Christian times in Wales, Ireland, Cornwall, Brittany, and probably Rome. Moreover, we can see at once that the fraction of error is infinitely greater when we are dealing, not with the development of a word in one language, 
but with its history as it descended from one language to another. For example, from the hypothetical parent tongue into the languages with which we are familiar today. Indeed, this kind of reasoning, if no other evidence were available, would lead us to conclude that the Greeks were acquainted with electricity. Fortunately, however, it is not the object of this little book to put forward theories and discuss the extent to which they can be proved or disproved by words. And though it has been interesting to observe that in some cases, and notably when we are endeavouring to reconstruct the life and thought of our Aryan ancestors, our knowledge, such as it is, is derived very largely from the evidence of words. Yet in these pages, even when that particular period is being dealt with, the words chosen for description will by no means necessarily be those which provide the most conclusive evidence for what is said. A great deal has been done in quite recent years by way of collating the results of comparative philology with those of anthropology, ethnology, comparative mythology, etc., and reconstructing from the combined data something of the past history of our own and other races or cultures. We are concerned here not with the way in which those results were arrived at, but with the results themselves. The reconstruction itself has been and is being done by scholars. Here the endeavour is rather to make use of their labours, not to think about the past as it were, but to look at it. Consequently, the words chosen are not the most useful ones, but those which are the best telescopes. For while the 19th century spent itself prodigally in multitudinous endeavours to know what the past was, it is now possible for us, by penetrating language with the knowledge thus accumulated, to feel how the past is. Who are the Aryans? Where did they come from? Looking back down the corridors of time from the particular perspective to which we have attained in the 20th century, far away in the past, it may be in the Stone Age, we seem to be able to perceive a remarkable phenomenon. At some particular spot in the vast plain stretching from Eastern Europe to Central Asia, it was as though a fresh spring bubbled up into the pool of humanity. Whether it represented the advent of a new race type, what a race type exactly is, and how it begins are questions which we must leave to others to settle. That spring was the Aryan culture. Throughout much of Europe and Asia, there were already in existence different civilizations in different stages of development. Such were the Egyptian, the Chaldean, and farther west, the great Minoan civilization 
which in its Bronze Age was to ray out an influence from Crete all over the Aegean world. It may be that there was something static in the very nature of these pre-Aryan cultures, or it may be that they were raging and passing in the natural course of events. What is certain is that there was something dynamic, some organic outpushing quality in the waters of this Aryan spring. For these waters spread, they have been spreading over the world ever since that time, now quickly, now slowly, down into India and Persia, north to the Baltic, west over all Europe and the New World, until in the persons of the three Aryan explorers, Peary, Amundsen and Scott, their waves have licked the poles. It appears to have been the tendency of the Aryan settler, whether he came as a conquering invader or as a peaceful immigrant, to obliterate more than he absorbed of the Aboriginal culture on which he imposed himself. In this, the Celts and the Teutons, who ages ago overran most of Europe, appear to have resembled the English-speaking settlers who long afterwards almost annihilated the North American Indian with his gods and his traditions. It is true that we English owe to this latter pre-Aryan race the ability to express just that shade of contempt which is conveyed by the word skunk, also the charming blend of whimsicality and reprobation crystallised in mugwump. But such survivals really only emphasise the extent to which, as the Aryan waters spread, the pre-Aryan past has been covered over. The past does indeed live in the language we speak, and in those with which we are familiar. But it is the past of the Aryans. If we dig down far enough into the English language, we reach an old civilization flourishing somewhere around the banks of the Dnieper, of what was going on in these islands at the time we hear scarcely the faintest reverberation. There is little doubt that the ancient inhabitants of Western Europe as a whole differed from their Aryan successors into important customs. They buried their dead, whereas the Aryans invariably used cremation, and they were organised in systems of matriarchies. Aryan culture is patriarchal to its very foundations. We may patronise our less fortunate neighbours, but we do not matronise them. Yet faint memories of such strange ways seem to have lingered on among the Aryans in the widespread legend of a race of Amazons, who once dwelt in the lost continent of Atlantis. The western land and in the rumour of mighty female warriors in pre-Celtic Gaul, while the name of the river Marn, Matrona, is thought to be another relic of the existence in pre-Aryan Europe 
of a race of men who defied their trees and streams, and hoped, when they died, to be gathered to their mothers. And that concludes tonight's readings. I hope you have enjoyed listening to this story, and I hope that you're feeling a little drowsy. If you're not quite tired yet, please feel free to listen to another episode of the Boy to Sleep podcast. Until next time, and good night.